0: This is Thomas Wayne Riley, and you have found yourself in the American Southwest. The events leading up to the Pueblo Revolt, the Pueblo Revolt itself, and now the reconquest after the Pueblo Revolt, as you have already gathered, have all, it turns out, taken one episode each, instead of my original plan of one episode, period. Period like for the whole thing. But obviously this is a benefit to all of us because this is just so exciting and interesting and I love learning and apparently y'all love listening to me learn you something. So if you haven't listened to the previous two episodes about the Spanish coming to the Southwest and then the Spanish getting kicked out of the Southwest, well obviously you should. If you have, awesome. That's good. Thank you. Let's continue the story of the reconquest after the Pueblo Revolt of 1680. As is customary, before we spend an entire episode on someone and before we dig into the reconquest of the land of enchantment, let's discover a little bit about our hero. And I do mean that in the truest sense of the word, hero, because as opposed to so many other Spaniards that I have so far talked about, while he does indeed have his uh, flaws, the reconqueror of New Mexico after the Pueblo Revolt, seems to have a whole lot more of the qualities that we today would identify as heroic. Now maybe I'm just looking for anyone in our story so far since the introduction of the Europeans in the new world to root for, maybe there aren't any at least by today's standards. Although it's quite possible today's standards aren't what we should be judging anyone by anyways. Well that, you know, that being said, Let's learn about the man who will take back New Mexico for Spain. Don Diego de Vargas Zapata Luján Ponce de León y Contreras. The last male descendant in the noble Vargas line of Madrid. First of all, his line, the Vargas line, is pretty storied and awesome. And it is filled with knights, saints, counselors to kings, ambassadors. There's some governors, warriors on the continent. the the European continent, and conquistadors in the New World. Did I mention actual medieval knights? They have their names inscribed into marble bridges and at the base of statues all over Spain. Theater plays were written about the Vargas, and colloquial sayings used their name. And the family was in the business of reconquering, for real. Since a ton of his ancestors are famous for taking back Spain from the Muslim Saracen infidels, as the Spanish would have called them, Don Diego was quite literally made for the role of the leader of the reconquest of New Mexico. Having been born in 1643 in Madrid, Diego de Vargas Apatelujan Ponce de Leon was only 23 years old when in 1666 his father, a knight, died in Guatemala, leaving him, Diego, with the entirety of the Vargas estate, which was massive. Four years later, in 1670, Diego had a daughter with his wife, Doña Beatriz Pimentel de Prado. By 1673, though, Diego de Vargas was across the ocean in Mexico, following in the footsteps of his father and his other ancestors. Uh, In Mexico, he was in the jurisdiction of Teotilene, which is in what is now the Mexican state of Oaxaca. And he was there as the chief judge of that jurisdiction, for he had begun his political career that very same year. But in what must have been a painful stab at the heart, the following year, 1674, Diego learned his wife had passed away back in Spain. After making sure his brother took custody of his child, with his continued financial support, of course, but with his brother taking control of his daughter back in Spain, Diego was free to move up the political ladder across the ocean. And in 1679, he found himself Justicia Mayor of the mining town of Tlalpuahua. Oh, he also found himself with three more kids with a woman in Mexico City by the name of Nicolasa Rincon. By now, after the three-ish failed attempts to take back New Mexico, which we talked about in the last episode, Vargas promised Spain and the king that he was the man to finally do it. And with a family history and name to back him up, Spain was all in. As J. Manuel Espinoza wrote, while summing up the Vargas line, "...the blood of conquerors ran unmistakably in Don Diego's veins." 12 years to the very day of the revolt, on August 10th, 1692, Vargas, having been given the office of governorship of New Mexico the previous year, on February 22nd of that previous year, but on the 12-year anniversary of the revolution that swept through New Mexico like a brush fire in the wind... Twelve years to the very day, Vargas announced his glorious turn at reconquest and resettlement. And then 11 days later, on the 21st, he marched with 50 soldiers, 10 armed civilians, and 100 Piro and southern Tiwa allies, who had come down that dozen years before, actually. But he marched this small but well-led army north. Yet... Even with this determined army, with the strong leader at its helm, who were all ready and willing to fight harder than the previous two armies had done, even with all that, they met very little resistance. That isn't to say no resistance, though. And as David Roberts puts it in Pueblo Revolt, quote, It would take four years for Vargas fully to establish control over the shattered Pueblo world, and those years would prove far from bloodless, and in the end, The new colony that Vargas brought into being bore only superficial resemblance to the abject fiefdom Oñate had launched in 1598. End quote. Since I knew very little about the Pueblo Revolt before deciding over a year ago to do a podcast about it, I knew even less about the reconquest of the Pueblo Revolt or after the Pueblo Revolt. This fact was made quite clear to me as article after article and a few books I read, especially David Roberts' book, The Pueblo Vault, um, they all reiterated the same fact that despite what you have read and or heard, or if you have heard nothing, what you may hear in the future, despite all of that, the reconquest was not bloodless. I guess it is known as the bloodless reconquest? So I'm here to tell you, dear listener and friend, that the reconquest was not bloodless, although it certainly was in the beginning, and Vargas certainly hoped it would continue that way. As he and his army marched north from El Paso towards the old capital of Santa Fe, rather rapidly, honestly, Vargas came upon the exact same scene so many Spaniards had come across on their way north before him. Deserted Pueblo after deserted Pueblo, They passed Sandia, Isleta, Domingo, even Cochiti. No one. Remember, Cochiti is where one of those few attempts at reconquest earlier had attempted to set up a forward operating base. And Isleta is where Otermin found some locals. This time, no one. Not a soul. At least, until they backtracked down the river and came to the Pueblo of San Felipe. It was here, at San Felipe, that Vargas and the Reconquers finally saw the Puebloan enemy. Except, this enemy wanted no fight. After some gentle coaxing down from off the surrounding mesa tops, a San Felipe Puebloan rode towards them on horseback and said in Spanish that they wanted no war, but rather they wanted help. Help, please! help in fighting their Tawan neighbors to the north. Those same Taewon neighbors, who had probably won the Anasazi Civil War and had come from Mesa Verde with Poseyemu leading them, they had come down to the Rio Grande Valley all those years ago. The same Tawan neighbors who had begun the Pueblo Revolt in the first place. With Popé the leader of the revolt if you'll remember, taking on the mantle of Poseyemu himself so the San Felipe Puebloans supposedly wanted Spanish help in fighting their northern revolutionary neighbors, the Tewa Indians. Vargas was rather surprised by this request, but he agreed, of course, the Spanish would help. That is, after all, why they had came back. Remember, the last real group that had come north were stopped in their tracks at Zia, where 50 of them had been injured. I have no doubt Vargas expected the same thing as he went north. So this was a blessing to him and his men. I'm sure by the campfire that night, they were praying to God in thanks for allowing them to succeed where their predecessors had not. But that joy would eventually fade... After waiting for an inordinate amount of time with nothing to show for it, Vargas and his Spaniards and Indian allies realized this may have been a ruse, since no San Felipe Puebloans showed back up at all. At this point, Vargas decided it was time to go north to Santa Fe, straight to the capital of this and his territory. It was time to make a statement, and to finally take it all back. No more games. The Vargas don't mess around, after all. According to Vargas' own testimony of what went down outside Santa Fe in the pre-dawn dark of September 13th, the armed Puebloans lined the fortress's walls from end to end once the Spaniards had been noticed creeping through the cornfields. They'd arrived on the outskirts the prior night, but Vargas had wanted to secure some element of surprise which he probably never had, honestly. Remember, the ancient ones, the Puebloans, the Indians, up until the 1870s were rarely, if ever, surprised by invaders. But in the dark of of the morning, before the sun had risen, the Spanish were creeping quietly through the enemy's cornfields, those cornfields that dotted the landscape outside of the walls of Santa Fe. Then, at some point, And what must have honestly been a frightening display, the Spaniards shouted in unison, five times, no doubt waking up any Puebloans who had not yet noticed the incoming conquerors. What they shouted was something they'd shout repeatedly during the reconquest at almost every Pueblo they would lay siege to. It seems like a somewhat intimidating and pretty awesome way to start a battle, if you ask me. They'd yell... Praise be the blessed sacrament of the altar. They shouted that five times, and what they must have felt like was their own version of the Old Testament assault on Jericho. Surely the walls were about to come down, right? Instead of securing the city, though, an almost comical interchange between the Tewa behind the walls, and the Spanish ready to invade actually ends up occurring. For whatever reason... The Puebloans along the ramparts thought the invading force of Spanish were Apache Indians. Apaches and some quote-unquote liars from Pecos Pueblo. Which really does go to show the amount of battling and infighting the Puebloans must have had with the outside raiders and with themselves in the previous 12 years. It does seem there truly was a breakdown of the alliance once the Spanish left. Now, of course, that alliance only lasted for the Pueblo Revolt, and it wasn't around before then. To this, though, the accusation that they were Apaches, the Spanish answered that no, no, in fact, they were Spaniards, sent from God and the crown to take back the land from them. The Puebloans, still sure in their knowledge that this was the Apache, and that this was all some OIT business. I'm referring to old Indian trick, of course. Well, the Tewa Puebloans behind the walls next asked if these invaders really were truly who they said they were. Are you really Spanish? They yelled. If you are Spaniards, then why aren't you firing your arquebuses? That is kind of a valid question, I suppose. Vargas responded with, according to his own words, "...I replied to this that I was a Catholic, and they should calm themselves." Remember, much like previous Entradas, he was there to treat the locals with love and respect, and to try and refrain from killing them. At least, killing them before they were baptized. Vargas, in this and in every situation during his reconquest, had to be the bigger, more gentler, wiser man. He was ordered to do so by the king of Spain, and this first real interaction had to look like the Spanish had truly changed from their earlier vengeful, burn everything down and hang and shoot and garrote and just kill everyone ways. The back-and-forth continued, though, uh, when the sentinels along the wall demanded that if they weren't going to shoot their guns or cannons, which were now pointing in their general direction, then they should blow a bugle. Okay, fair enough. In response, Vargas had his men blow the bugle and pound the war drum, but not fire their arquebuses nor the cannons. At this point... The Puebloans may have actually believed the Spaniards because, as Vargas says, they quote, replied that they were ready to fight for five days. They had to kill us all. We must not flee, as we had the first time, and they had to take everyone's life. At the same time, they began a furious shouting that must have lasted more than an hour. End quote. Clearly, the Puebloans were pissed. I think they'd have actually preferred if it had been Apache's. But, I mean, put yourself in this scene, if you haven't already. It's dark, and you're a Spaniard or a Puebloan ally of the Spanish, and you've been marching for days, and have seen barely a Puebloan, whom you have sworn to not think of as your enemy, but they are still dangerous, and they are out there. And then, you finally found the Indians. But it's probably chilly, and your steel gun or sword is cold in your hands, and your steel armor is heavy on your torso... You're trying to quietly creep through the cornfields in the dark, ready to go to war and die for, I don't know, valor or honor or God or king or what have you, and you're creeping towards this wall that was the capital of New Mexico, but then you're noticed. And then for the next hour, you, your leader, and the Indians yell and shout until the sun comes up. Then, according to Vargas, again, he leads you and everyone forward 20 more paces. 20 steps closer to that wall of deadly Indians. Vargas tells all of his soldiers at this point and their allies, after that hour of angry shouting from the Puebloans to advance 20 paces, as I just described, he then again urged the defenders to calm down because he was, quote, not coming to do them any harm whatsoever, end quote. Truthfully, I I believe him. He really wanted to welcome the Puebloans back, as peacefully as he could. It was his mission, after all. This is indeed a pretty comically tense scene, really, but lurking under the apparent silliness is the knowledge that any one warrior on either side makes any sort of mistake, and the fighting breaks out. And then, who knows what the outcome would be. Sure, the Puebloans have a big wall, but the Reconquerors have their cannons and their sheer will. After all, Vargas was their leader, and reconquest is in his blood. Eventually, the Puebloans ask Don Diego to remove his helmet so that they may see his face and who he really is. Vargas agrees to this and removes his metal. And he does this despite the fact that someone could have shot an arquebus or an arrow right directly at his Spanish head. It probably wouldn't have hit its mark, but still. So the brave Vargas took off his helmet and showed his white Spanish face and, well, once they saw he was really a Spaniard, oh, all hell broke loose. The Puebloans rained down complaints and curses and vitriolic anger upon Vargas and his comrades from one end of the wall all the way to the other. They yelled about how the Spanish had caused the Apaches to be angry at them and even to fight them. They complained through an interpreter, a Puebloan who could speak Spanish well, and who would later prove to be actually a thorn in the side of Vargas, Uh, which I hope I can remember to mention him again. But just know he's a trickster, and his name is Antonio Bolsas. Well, this Bolsas interpreter would recount to the Spaniards about how the Spaniards had treated them, the Indians, how they treated them so poorly, and had beat them and had forced them to build their Catholic churches against their will, and the Spanish wouldn't let them practice their own religions, and so on and so forth, everything I covered in the last episode. Bolsas even mentions three particularly brutal Spaniards by name, and says they in particular had harmed and beaten their leaders, including the late Pope. To me, and probably all of you, yeah. Of course these complaints are valid and are all good reasons to kick out your conquerors, despite them not using that actual term. I'm sure Vargas felt a little bit of understanding, but after hearing this last complaint, he did assure the Puebloans that those three men were not among them. I did not read anywhere that they specifically mentioned Javier, but I imagine that he, Javier, was among those three names. Remember... Uh, if you will. He was the author of the Troubles I mentioned in the previous episode. He was the Spaniard who even showed up to, I think it was Cochiti, and beat the guy right there in the middle of the Pueblo. But he's mentioned a lot in the last two episodes. After assuring the Puebloans that these three men were not among them, something rather remarkable happened, which I'll explain by quoting David Roberts, who is a favorite author of mine. He's an adventurer. And he wrote quite a few books that I have quoted from recently, uh, actually pretty much since the entire Ancient Ones series. But David Roberts says, Instead of a battle, he had begun a dialogue. Now Bolsus weakened, hinting at clemency rather than war. Roberts now quotes Vargas. He, meaning Bolsus, stated the guilty for the revolt had already died and the living were not at all guilty, and most of them had been young men then. End all quotes. After hearing that the ones responsible were dead, whether true or not, Vargas reassured Bolsas that his mission was to pardon the Puebloans, not to punish them. And for the moment, that seemed to have worked, and a battle was avoided. For now. After Bolsas had retreated, though, An Indian came down from the Pueblo, uh, from Santa Fe, I I should say. An Indian came down from Santa Fe decked out in armor, and with a shield and with a bow and arrows and a lance, and this decked-out Indian refused to shake Vargas' hand. I guess he just kind of stood there silently and stared at the Spaniards and Indian allies, just right there on the front lines. Meanwhile, these same Spanish men and Indian allies were noticing when they weren't staring at the decked-out Indian warrior, they were noticing the many puebloan warriors approaching and filling the ranks of the defenders at Santa Fe. The walls grew thicker with dark hair and lances as the Indians gathered stones to throw, painted themselves with war paint, and began shouting loudly with a show of force. At one point... The Puebloans even came down and asked for two friars to come into the Pueblo to have a chat, I imagine. Was the excuse? Shockingly, well, not shockingly, if you have been listening to these episodes about the Spanish. But I guess surprisingly, two of the friars accompanying Vargas actually leaped off their horses and began walking gleefully towards what they had to have known was certain death. And if they didn't know it, and these friars really are just the strangest, most suicide-loving men of God. Gotta give them props for bravery, though. Or lunacy. Or just a pure eagerness to meet their God through holy martyrdom. As they approached the walls, I imagine with smiles and arms either reverently folded or, like, out to the sides as if to welcome arrows to the chest. Well, as they were walking towards the wall... Vargas stopped them personally at the last second with, Your reverences! Stop! By 11 a.m., the Spanish and the rest of the Reconquistadors understood it was time to settle this dispute. Vargas sent four warriors to block Santa Fe's water um, by filling the only ditch which brings it in, at a place higher above the city. This is the same move the Indians had pulled on the survivors in Altamine, 12 years before. Vargas would later write down that he eventually told them in no uncertain tones, quote, "I would consume and destroy them by fire and sword, holding nothing back." End quote. He no doubt meant it. Also, that's pretty hardcore. That's pretty awesome. At this point, a Tewa chief named Domingo, who would also go on to be a thorn in Vargas' side in the near future, um he would try to incite yet another revolt. But that's, that's later. The chief Domingo came out to ask the army and readying for a siege, Spanish, finally for peace. But Vargas continued the show, and he loaded cannons and fixed arquebuses to carts as a sort of proto-Humvee. Two hours of this gearing up for battle continued. High noon came and went. Domingo, who had gone back to the Puebloans and attempted to talk them into not fighting, eventually he just gave up and told Vargas on his way out that, "Hey, man, these people are not surrendering. I'm a head out." Then Domingo left. All the while, confident in his ability to end this, as he was commanded which was, again, peacefully. Vargas continued the show of force while also promising to pardon all the Puebloans. He also continually raised the emblem of the Virgin Mary over and over again, while simultaneously assuring the dwindling Puebloans behind the wall that he would indeed be absolutely merciless if this came to battle. Vargas wrote, Quote, I replied that I was neither afraid of them nor humbled as they were, confined, besieged, without water, and subject to my burning them out and killing them all, which I could have done in the time that had passed since I arrived. End quote. That would have looked a lot like the reverse of 1680. And I think the Puebloans came to realize it. It also would have looked a lot like Vargas' predecessors. Finally, two Indians crept out of the besieged Santa Fe and offered the peace from all the Indians inside the city's walls. At this point, Vargas not only shook these two men's hands, but he also hugged them both. Afterwards, he and his forty soldiers marched into the crumbling capital of New Mexico, that is, Santa Fe. Vargas would say of the whole day, The Indians, although frightened, began to come out to give me the peace, which I gave them all. With all my love, I spoke words of tenderness and love so that they might be reassured about my good intentions." End quote. I think in that moment, he really felt a huge sense of relief, and as his nightly blood required of him, he was truly filled with love and thankfulness that he hadn't had to kill anyone. But certainly the retaking of New Mexico couldn't have been that easy, right? That very day, he had a cross erected in the center of the city. Surprisingly, and thankfully, because of the lack of bloodshed thus far, but over the next few days, many nearby Pueblo leaders came and offered peace and submission for their people. Yet still, Vargas needed full submission from all the Pueblos for this reconquest to work. So at the end of that month, September of... 1692, Vargas set out on a mission to visit every known Pueblo in order to ask for submission and, of course, to give pardon. One of the first Pueblos Vargas would visit was Pecos. Uh, If you have not been to Pecos National Historical Park, just off of I-25, east of Santa Fe and south of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains, which are the Rocky Mountains, the Southern Rocky Mountains. I implore you, if you have not been, to visit. It is amazing. And you can see the old church, or what they reconstructed of it. And you can walk amongst uh, Puebloan ruins. And you can go down in a reconstructed kiva. And it's not far from a Civil War battle. Actually, it was the decisive Civil War battle in the American West, really. Unfortunately. Well, I shouldn't say unfortunately, but the Yankees routed the Rebs in that one. Uh, uh, you know, me and my folk are all deeply from the South, so you'll have to pardon me. But the National Park, slash, I guess, National Monument, it's a great off the beaten path and rarely visited place, and it has gorgeous views and a great history. The cover of the last episode of the Pueblo Revolt is of the destroyed church in the Kiva. built from the church. I took that picture, I took two pictures, and then kind of put them together and drew them on my iPad to make uh, that um, cover. Just outside a view of the large pueblo that is Pecos, Vargas and his men camped for a night before surrounding the important pueblo the next morning. Then, at his signal, Vargas and the men all shouted in unison five times, as was their calling card, Alabarseo, el Santísimo Sacramento. Praise be the Blessed Sacrament of the Altar. He'd done this at Santa Fe, remember? remember, oh, and when he'd do it again too. But you won't have to listen to my Spanish uh, retelling of it again. After the fifth shout, Vargas unsheathed his sword and shouted Santiago. According to John Kessel, who wrote *Keep a Cross and Crown*. According to Kessel, quote, Vargas encouraged his men, if these Indians wanted battle, the Christians, now he's quoting Vargas, the Christians, quote, should trample them underfoot, capture them, and kill them, end quote. But be warned, they could have Apaches with them. Now the Spaniards closed at full gallop, end By now, the entire fierce Spanish-led army descended upon Pecos, ready for its subjugation, forced subjugation. Once they reached the Grand Pueblo, though, they found it was abandoned, which, obviously, like it has been and will be again, that is a theme that Don Diego would find throughout all of his travels through the land that was New Mexico. Curiously, as if they had just missed him, In the trees outside of town, outside of Pecos, were left hanging animal skins, which they had probably planned on trading with the Apaches. Also, tracks of children, men, and horses were scattered all around the valley and the surrounding hills. Within the pueblo, which wasn't fully abandoned really, as I said earlier, uh, within the pueblo there were left only a few older people and women, and they were tending to the crops and begging the Spanish for peace. One of Vargas' men, a man named Pedro Hidalgo, a man who had survived the 1680 Revolt, whom Kessel described as, quote, describing Pedro Hidalgo, but Kessel describes him as, quote, a swarthy, well-built man, thick of beard, with short curly hair and the scar of a burn across his cheek. Born and raised in New Mexico and now in his mid-forties, Hidalgo had witnessed the death of one of the missionaries in 1680 and lived to tell about it, End quote. This man, it is not known if he could speak Tewa, or Tiwa, or Kirazan, or any of the languages the Puebloans spoke, but he was nonetheless appointed as Vargas Interpreter, and that's just what he did, or at least attempted to do. And from the readings, uh, it seems that he did it somewhat successfully. At Pecos, Hidalgo would interrogate for Vargas the very few Puebloans who had voluntarily, or involuntarily, been left behind. And all of these people pretty much told Hidalgo and Vargas the same thing. And that was that the young warriors wanted nothing to do with the Spanish and the religious. Yet... The older men sought peace. One of the prisoners that Vargas would capture was the self-proclaimed governor of Pecos, and he echoed those same exact words and sentiments. When Vargas had actually found him, this self-proclaimed governor, the old man in his 60s, had been but naked and looking rather frail. I believe Vargas must have taken some pity on him. Seeing a way for this to go well instead of sideways, Vargas appointed this man, the old ex-governor, he appointed him as his emissary. Vargas then hung a rosary around the old man's neck, gave him a piece of paper saying he was to be treated with respect and peace, and then he sent him off to find his people. And once he found them, to tell his people that the Spanish truly meant no harm this time. And once he had told them that, he was to obviously bring them back. Vargas then hugged the old man and sent him on his way. In the letter that Don Diego de Vargas had given him, though, as a sign of affection, and because I think Vargas is just about the only real Spanish hero of our story, but within that letter that he had given the old man Vargas had tucked away a cross he had personally made the loss of true nobility and chivalry as in knighthood and even earned aristocracy their loss is some of the few lamented casualties of the enlightenment I think At Pecos, Vargas and his men would take up residence in the Pueblo and the Kivas, and they'd wait for four whole days. And during those four days, Vargas would find a total of 27 people that he would keep as quote-unquote prisoners, although many of them were actually prisoners themselves, prisoners of the Pecos, or at least that's what they told Vargas. A second older man would approach with the very cross the governor had, uh, the ex-governor had been sent out with, much to Vargas' surprise and relief. This older man would yet again repeat the same stories of the younger braves and warriors wanting to leave and do battle, while the women and older Puebloans had wanted to stay and make peace. This second older man also told Vargas that the old ex-governor, whom he'd shown so much affection to, he was trying his hardest to gather up his people and bring them back. As a sign of good faith, Vargas told this second older man that he and his Spanish forces were ready to leap the very moment the Puebloans returned. Just, please return. Oh, and also, Vargas wanted to be like brothers to the Puebloans so that they may do no harm to each other from here on out. With that news, the second older gentleman left the Pueblo. Vargas really is a different type of Spaniard than we've been learning about so far. As the days ticked by, more people came to visit him, and they would all tell him the same story. And they'd all tell him that the Puebloans... They're returning soon. Like, don't worry, we promise. Meanwhile, Vargas sent out some more runners to further on pueblos to let them know he was coming shortly and to prepare themselves to return to the Spanish fold. It seems he'd had about enough of Pecos, and you can't blame him. His frustration was indeed pretty warranted. On that fourth day, a runner who'd been sent out into the surrounding lands returned with. A single, young Pecos Puebloan boy. And this boy had the bad news. Instead of the people gathering to return, the old men, including the ex-governor, had been threatened with death for wanting to appease the Spanish, and the entirety of the people had scattered in the wind, just blown away. There was no bringing the Pecos back at this moment. According to the youth, the Pecos Puebloan and even the nearby Tewa Pueblos were scared of the Spanish. They were scared of the Spanish because the Spanish were dogs, and you can't tame these dogs. So the Pecos Puebloans were going to live up at Taos, or maybe even with the Apache, where their odds fared better than they would have with the Spanish, or so they thought. So now Vargas seemingly had two options. He could act like every other petty despot Spanish ruler and he could burn the place to the ground just as the Puebloans had burned down the mighty church that once stood there. Or he could act as his noble line of ancestors demanded and he could leave in peace and allow the fields to keep their bounty, the kivas to keep their roofs, and the three-story Pueblo buildings to stand. Not surprisingly, the man whose ancestors were literal knights of the Spanish realm, he chose peace. And after freeing all of the prisoners, except the ones who were prisoners themselves and who opted to go with the Spanish as opposed to return to Pecos as prisoners, but Vargas freed all of the Pecos prisoners, painted a cross in the kiva, erected a large cross in the plaza, left another piece of paper for safe passage uh, with one of his little handmade crosses in it, and... He and his army of Spaniards and Native American allies, they left. He wasn't bluffing. Kessel writes of the whole thing, By his restraint at Pecos, something the Pueblos did not expect of Spaniards, Diego de Vargas had cut the ground out from under the young hawks. The soldiers had not even ravaged their kivas. Vargas was gambling. By this act of good faith, he hoped to win an ally, end quote. My only pushback is that Vargas may not have been gambling, but simply acting as someone of nobility ought to. I guess that's enough editorializing on his saintly saintly, uh, nobility. After Pecos, Don Diego de Vargas visited San Juan, San Lazaro, San Cristobal, the Jaliceo Basin, which is south of Santa Fe. He visited the Chiras Pueblos and Taos. And at Taos, he successfully convinced the Puebloans to come out of the mountains, which he hadn't been able to do at Pecos, remember. Once he'd gained their trust, Vargas and the religious baptized 96 Puebloans and forgave the remainder of them. Although, something troubling did occur. At Taos, two elders of the Pueblo asked to meet Vargas in his tent while he was there, and Vargas obliged them. Once the secret meeting had begun, the two elders told Hidalgo, the interpreter, who then told Vargas, uh, he told him that, at Zuni, the people there, not just the Zuni, but the Hopi and the Jemez, the Chires, some Pecos, Apaches, and others, they had held a three-day ceremony where it was decided that they were all going to join up together, just like they had in 1680, and they were going to repel the Spaniards once and for all this time. for real. After hearing this, Vargas thanked the old man and then sent word to his Puebloan allies, the Tewa and Tano warriors he could depend on at least, but he sent word to them to gather their best warriors and meet him in Santa Fe by October 16th. They were riding out to stop this possible rebellion. But first, he had to go back to Pecos the fact that he hadn't been able to get their peace and blessings had been bothering him. But he knew of the kinship between the Puebloans at Taos, where he just had been, and the Puebloans at Pecos. So he used this to his advantage. While he was at Taos, he had some of those Puebloans run over to Pecos and tell them that, hey, these Spaniards, led by this awesome dude Vargas, they really were different this time. You seriously can trust them. And this, it seems to have worked. And much to Vargas' relief, back at Pecos, after the Spanish had arrived, he found all the Puebloans waiting for him with peace in their hearts. Kessel writes of this whole interaction, quote, They crowded around the entrance of the Pueblo, some of them holding aloft arches of evergreen branches. They had set up a cross, large and very well made. At about two in the afternoon of October seventeenth, 1692, a Friday, as Diego de Vargas and his party of mounted Spaniards approached, they stepped back, opening a path. Those who remembered chanted the alabada The Spaniards responded gratefully. End quote. Those Indian allies he'd hoped to have with him hadn't shown up, apparently because of a bad harvest, but it was no matter. He did not need them, thankfully. I'll just uh, again, quote, Castle one more time here, of the scene after Vargas and the Spanish had entered the Pecos Pueblo. The Spanish governor called to the ensign to hoist the royal banner three times. Hung on a processional staff, it bore the image of Nuestra Señora de los Remedios, Don Diego's special patroness. A squad of soldiers stood at attention with swords unsheathed. Each time the banner went up, Vargas led the crowd in the cry, Long live the king, our lord! God save him! Charles the Second, king of the Spains, of all this new world and of the kingdoms and provinces of New Mexico, and of these subjects newly won and conquered. Each time, the soldiers responded, Long live the king! May he reign in happiness! Jubilantly, amid cheering, the soldiers threw their hats into the air. Pecos, its lands, and its people had been reconquered. Falling on their knees, the friars intoned the Te Deum Laudamus. You know, I can't help but picture this scene on this cold October day as being kind of one-sided in its jubilation, but it must have been quite a scene nonetheless. Thankfully, as we'll soon learn, this time around, it truly was going to be different for the Puebloans. But they didn't know that yet. There was no way they could have known that. It was now time for Vargas, in what Kessel called a suicidal boldness, it was time for him to head west and retake those Pueblos and Puebloans for Spain once again. Once at Zuni, rather than start the second revolt, the Puebloans capitulated quickly, which was probably due to the Apaches having told them they were all going to be murdered by the Spanish, who were coming swiftly on their way. And thankfully, that was not the case. But it still scared the Kachinas out of them. They probably also got word from the many other pueblos of the bloodlessness thus far of this whole endeavor, and the peacefulness that the Spanish had shown everyone. Then, at the Hopi Pueblo of awatovi which is the first pueblo the Spanish would have come to on Antelope Mesa, which sits just southeast of First Mesa, Awatobi was quite the hub of activity for the Hopi, and it was a truly important city. Which is why what I'll bring up later, like way later, towards the end, is so shocking. But for now, at this time of Vargas' arrival, 122 men, women, children, they were baptized during his visit, which to the Spaniards, remember, that is a true blessing. But what wasn't a blessing was the news a Puebloan man named Miguel told Vargas. Apparently, at the Hopi village of Walpi, the other leaders and governors of the Hopi had a meeting where it was decided they were going to complete the plan they'd formed at Zuni and they were going to kill all the Spanish. Even knowing that, though, the brave and seemingly divinely protected, yet boldly suicidal, Vargas... He kind of reminds me of those friars I bring up all the time in their love of suicide. He seemingly wanted to meet God sooner. But Vargas, who had been warned by Miguel before, mind you, but Vargas yet again ignored the Puebloan's warnings, and he climbed to the top of the heavily defended and hard to get to Walpi Pueblo. And Walpi Pueblo sits on First Mesa in the Hopi Mesa world, or as David Roberts describes it, perched atop a knife-edged fin of a butte that thrusts west. It's a pretty good description. Once in the Pueblo, Vargas approached the rebellious leader named Antonio and told he and his men to lay down their arms, which they did. Although not everyone at the Pueblo agreed to lay down their arms, those who weren't from Walpai held on to him, just in case. Surprisingly, Vargas and his divine protection baptized 81 more people and erected yet another cross. And yet again, no bloodshed. But Vargas did write down that he indeed noticed the Puebloans who refused to lay down their weapons. On Second Mesa, much the same happens inside the villages of Moshung Novi and Jungle Pavi. It seems nothing could stop Vargas in his bloodless reconquest. He had just one more mesa, third mesa, and one more major pueblo on that mesa, Oribe. Oribe is the only one that he needed to pardon, convert, and subjugate for Spain. It was the only one left. But Oribe would prove to be the one and only pueblo to resist the 1692 Reconquista. Miguel, that Puebloan who warned him about the Hopi vengeance that was awaiting him, had warned him again and had told him for real, for real this time at Oribe, you're not going to make it out alive if you try these shenanigans. Apparently, something, maybe it was that divine protection, but Vargas heeded Miguel's warning and decided to head back east. All the way back east. Actually, even beyond Santa Fe. He'd be in El Paso by mid-December, and he'd be a rather happy man. He'd brought 23 Pueblos back to heel, and he'd baptized 2,214 Indians in the process. Kessel, in Kiva, Cross and Crown, quotes a news bulletin of the day that stated, Quote, an entire realm was restored to the majesty of our lord and king, Charles II, without wasting a single ounce of powder, unsheathing a sword, or, what is most worthy of emphasis and appreciation, without costing the royal treasury a single maravedi. End quote. I tried to sound like those old-timey like news reports, even though this is like the 17 or 1690s. Before Vargas made it back to El Paso, he would stop at El Moro, that awesome place near El Malpais in New Mexico, where Oñate carved his name and Puebloans before him carved kachinas, and where Anasazi and ancestral Puebloans before them carved their petroglyphs. On El Morro is carved this exquisite boast. Here was the general Don Diego de Vargas, who conquered for our holy faith and for the royal crown all the New Mexico at his expense. Year of 1692. I suppose he earned that one. Although, the bloodless part of the exceptional Reconquista, the part about no swords being unsheathed, or a single ounce of powder being used, unfortunately that was not meant to last. Now, for the second part of Vargas' mission, bring some hardy colonists north to repopulate Santa Fe. At this particular task, he was less successful than he'd hoped he would be. At least at first. At the time, El Paso wasn't an easy life by itself, with constant Indian attacks from Apache and many other nomadic tribes who had been stealing horses and people for a century already. Not to mention, the Pueblo Revolt itself was still fresh, As my sister-in-law calls it, the land of entrapment wasn't looking like a great place to set up shop or home for the leery Spaniards that had already survived the revolt and the ensuing 12 years. Eventually, the king's treasury cut Vargas off when he'd spent 40,000 pesos on recruitment. So much for not costing the royal treasury anything. But apparently to Vargas... His mission was complete, the second part of his mission. After all that time and money, he had succeeded in gathering what he felt was enough people to head north and resettle the land. With all that money and time, he had ran around the entirety of New Spain. He was looking for worthy families to help him resettle, and by October of 1693, almost a, a year since his return from reconquest, which, again, that's a long time. And this long absence no doubt confused the Puebloans up north about the Spaniards' true intentions. I mean, were they coming back? Were they bluffing? Well, Vargas set off once again for Santa Fe in October. This time, his party was much, much larger. Actually, over four times as large as his previous excursion. The Bureau of Land Management... American Bureau of Land Management, the BLM, has a series titled A Forgotten Kingdom, The Spanish Frontier in Colorado and New Mexico, 1540-1821, to 1821, that talks about the people he recruited. The paper says, quote, Vargas settlers represented a cross-section of society in New Spain. Along with the quality families of the interior, Vargas gathered 27 families of Negroes and Mestizos from Zacatecas, also included were widows, single men, and a few Spaniards of pure blood, with great social standing. Uh, it goes on to say, "...Luis Granillo was named second in command, Roque Madrid was put in charge of the soldiers, and Fray Salvador was superior to the 40 missionaries. Santa Fe was to be reached in 50 days." Quote. So with him were 100 soldiers, 70 families plenty of Indian allies, and 18 Franciscan friars. Not to mention 2,000 horses, 1,000 mules, and 900 head of cattle. But the drive back to Santa Fe wasn't as rosy as Vargas or any of the new colonists had hoped it would be. Kessel writes of the escapade, The journey north was a nightmare. The wind blew bitter cold. Food ran low. Wagon wheels came off, and nearly everyone was sick. Worse, as Vargas and his vanguard of 50 men scouted ahead through the first abandoned Pueblos, they began hearing rumors that most of the Indians, fortified on mesa tops, intended to resist. End quote. That had to be the worst news he could have gotten. And it no doubt scared the living daylights out of many who had agreed to try their luck in the quote-unquote reconquered land. Obviously, this enormous caravan of animals and people was very tempting to the local Native Americans as the new colonists passed through their various territories which resulted in the theft of a number of animals. It was also incredibly slow going. It really wasn't often the greatest of starts. But then, on November 10th, Vargas would receive some, some even more troubling news only three Pueblos remained loyal. In only eight months, the people had remembered their rebellion. Now, only the Pueblos of San Felipe, Santa Ana, and Zia remained vassals, and they remained in constant fear of Popes and the rebellion's ghost. Not only that, but the northern Tewa-speaking Pueblos, those Puebloans who had left Mesa Verde all those centuries before, as they emerged from Tehuayoc, and then had kicked off the revolt emerging again from Tewayo, they had gathered the other Kiowa- tonoan speaking peoples of the Tiwa and Toa, and with them, they had gathered even more Indians from the Navajo and Apache tribes, and they were all ready for a fight. There was only one thing Vargas could do after hearing this news, and that was to act as bravely suicidal as he had previously. With 50 soldiers, he ran north to the defense of his Puebloan subjects. But the news would continue to get worse. Vargas learned from the governor of Pecos Pueblo himself that the people were ready for war with him. Uh, because a man, a man who had been Vargas's interpreter the year before, actually, but a man named Pedro de Tapia had spread a dangerous lie once Vargas had left for El Paso that previous year. Tapia had spread the false news during a meeting of Pueblo leaders that once Vargas returned, he was going to kill everyone in the New Mexico Territory except those between the ages of 12 and 14. Essentially, everyone born after the revolt would be spared, and only them. Tapia himself had died since he spread the lie, but his rumor lived on. And now, Vargas had an angry Puebloan army to the north and to the west. The bad news didn't cease for Vargas after learning of the hostility, though. Once the rest of the caravan reached him, he discovered the people had traded many of their goods, far more than had been necessary, of course. But they traded way too much of their precious goods, and even some of their weapons. They traded them to Indians for sacks of corn, guns, Powder, jewelry, and even horses have been traded for beans and grains. It's amazing what starvation will do. But then at the end of November, it snowed. Heavily. And with a bitter cold and a biting wind attached to it. Not long afterwards, 16 men and women, including 7 soldiers, would steal horses, clothing, food, and head out into the territory wanting nothing more to do with what was looking like a doomed situation. Vargas vowed retribution on the mutineers, but would never get the chance to mend it out, as far as I can tell. The fate of those seven would be interesting to know, but I did not have much luck finding that information. Unless a few of them were returned to Vargas later by some Puebloans, but we'll, we'll hear about that. I'm not sure if they are the ones to the same deserters as... I'm talking about now. Some relief, though, did finally come from the Pecos. That pueblo that he had thankfully spared the year or so prior. The relief came in the form of some maize flower, but still, it wasn't quite enough. Then, on December 10th, Vargas and what was left of the large group of settlers went north some 25 miles to Santa Fe to prove to all the Indians of the land that he and Spain and God were there, and they were there to stay. But it would take them almost a week of rough travel through heavy snow to cover the paltry 25 miles. And it's at this point a certain déjà vu sets in all over again. When Vargas and his group reached the walls of Santa Fe, Like last time, the Indians lined the ramparts and blocked access, except there was no war whooping or hollering or asking if they were Apache or Spanish, but instead, they stood stoic. And like last time, Vargas stood in the fields. He had priests sing, kneel, and pray loudly. He had the Virgin Mary proudly displayed. He erected a cross. He also had some silly-seeming ceremony where a priest handed him a document saying he now had Santa Fe again, even though he was clearly not in control of the city. Now Vargas would speak through an interpreter, and he would tell the gathered Puebloan leaders that he had again, in fact, come in peace, and he was ready to bless his children, and that the king wasn't mad, and etc., etc., etc. But the Puebloans were having none of it. This time, Vargas decided to play it safe, and after realizing he wasn't going to be let in, he and the caravan headed north and set up camp at the base of a mountain at a distance from Santa Fe, which he describes as, quote, two arquebus shots away, end quote. I love that measure of distance, two arquebus shots away. My brief research tells me that is about a thousand yards. Apparently, most arquebuses were deadly at 400 yards, but Spanish ones were deadly at 600. So I'm taking the middle ground. A thousand yards away from Santa Fe to the north, in the cold and the snow, at the base of a mountain, the bedraggled group hung out and waited. And they'd wait for 13 days. 13 rough and cold and deadly days. During these 13 days, apparently the Puebloan Indians, curious at their new neighbors, would just come out of Santa Fe and walk around the camp. They'd peer into tents, and they'd take things and laugh as they walked by, and obviously the colonists were quite frightened. I kind of enjoyed that visual, though. It must have been awkward, and Vargas had to have been furious, and the people scared, but Vargas had to act like the Spanish knight he was and keep his cool, at least for now. Both groups, though, both groups were running dangerously low on food. And sadly, the Spanish camp had no church. So to remedy this situation, Vargas did the cool and sane thing and demanded that the Puebloans head on into Santa Fe and fix that church they burned down during the revolt so that they could have mass like good Christians, Catholics. Christian Catholics. But please, while you rebuild the church, do it with a smile and be happy about it. Because, quote, it was not work to make the house of God and his mother, the virgin, our lady, who was closed up in a wagon. If a lady came, they had a duty to give her a house, quote. Surprisingly, instead of laughing in Vargas' face, the governor of the Pueblo of Santa Fe, a man named Jose, said, look, it's too cold and there's too much snow to go up into the mountains and cut down some trees to rebuild your church, so why don't you just use one of our kivas? To which Fargus said, surprisingly, sure, okay, sounds good to me. Once in the kiva, they closed up the hole in the roof. Obviously, a church can't have a hole in the roof. They blasted a hole in the side of the kiva to make a door, and they whitewashed the walls, destroying the kiva murals inside, which were probably beautiful. They also, of course, built an altar, and they dragged the church vestiges inside. And then, after all of that, the head priest, Salvador, changed his mind and said, no, never mind, we can't do mass in here where the Indians had their evil religious ceremonies. Who are we, heathens? It's almost as if the Spanish were asking for trouble. I mean, seriously. As David Roberts puts it, all this must have sorely tested Puebloan patience. I'm sure the head priest probably even frustrated Vargas's patience as well. All the while, during those 13 days, the colonists worryingly watched as the Indians were gathering reinforcements. They'd see them coming into Santa Fe every day. And meanwhile, Vargas told the Puebloans after some deserters, again, possibly the ones I mentioned earlier, but after some deserters were brought to him, he made it be known that these deserters were actually at the head of the incoming 200 soldiers that were on their way to reinforce him. He he essentially lied and said these prisoners are not prisoners, these are soldiers that that are leading a 200-man army from New Spain. This bluff got the Spanish 20 sacks of maize from the Puebloans on the spot. In reality, disease and cold were actually killing many of the colonists, including children. The winter that year would prove to be the coldest for anyone living there, and the brutal temperatures and the snow and wind were freezing the camp to death. Twenty-two of Vargas's travelers would die before long. The people and Vargas couldn't hold out much longer. On December 27th, after what had to be a pretty disappointing and sad Christmas, maybe even a blue Christmas... But on December 27th, the news came to Vargas by way of a blind spy he had inside Santa Fe. He heard that the Indians had guessed, correctly, that the 200 soldiers coming, that was a lie. And so the Indians were now preparing for war. It wasn't a total lie, though. Pecos, they were sending 140 warriors, but they weren't there quite yet. And they weren't arquebus-firing, horse-riding Spanish soldiers, either. Then on the 28th, Vargas himself went to the gates of Santa Fe and asked for peace one last time. But it was denied him. And that night, the people heard war chants and screams all throughout the darkness. The battle was coming. In Keep a Cross and Crown, Kessel writes, Addressing his entire army, as men and horses stood there benumbed, their breath escaping in white puffs. Don Diego de Vargas reassured them that God and the Blessed Virgin were with them, a fact Fray Diego de Zenos confirmed. Then all knelt in the snow, recited the general confession, and were absolved by the friar. Mounted up, they moved forward, and, met by a hail of shouting arrows and rocks, they yelled the Santiago and charged. The prayers, the reassurances, and the charge would happen on the morning of the 29th. And the fighting would effectively end the night of the 29th. The Puebloans just stood no match against Spanish steel, armor, aim, and firepower. Despite the Puebloans putting up a tough fight with stones and arrows and spears, according to Vargas, not a single Spanish soldier was seriously injured during the battle and nine Puebloans lost their lives. The gate was set fire to. The walls had holes blown in them from cannons. Half the city was taken quickly, and then by nightfall, almost the entire city was taken. Along the hills, other Puebloan warriors gathered, but Vargas sent a group of Spanish and Indian soldiers to shoo them away, which they did. The Puebloans still trapped in the city of Santa Fe hid, As best they could, but Vargas set up sentries to watch for any fleeing Indians, and he slowly pulled them from their kivas and hiding places throughout the night. With seemingly no other option, the governor of the Pueblo of Santa Fe, the aforementioned Jose, hanged himself before dawn. But the real slaughter was just about to begin. This is where everyone points to the fact that the bloodless reconquest was not, in fact, bloodless. Vargas would raise the flag of triumph over the city, assemble the prisoners, chastise them for their deception, line up all captured warrior prisoners outside the city, have them absolved of their sins, and then shot. As Roberts puts it, quote, In a matter of minutes, 70 Puebloan warriors lay dead in the dirt. End quote. Vargas then informed every surviving Puebloan at Santa Fe, 400 of them, including women and children, that they were to be punished with 10 years of servitude, a.k.a. slavery. He let his colonists, their new masters now, divide up the Indians as they saw fit. It seems Vargas's old interpreter's words of Spanish punishment were... Coming true. For the Pecos Pueblo, though, which had sent, again, over 140 warriors in that battle for Santa Fe, Vargas was true to his word of helping them, as they had helped Vargas. Only days after the siege, when a band of rebel Tewas, Tainos, Picuris, and Apache threatened the Pueblo, the governor, a man named Don Juan de Ye, a close friend of Vargas by now, He asked for the Spaniards' help, which Vargas sent him right away. He sent the help in the form of his second-in-command, his Maese de campo, a man we will talk about a bit later, but a man named Madrid, Roque Madrid. Madrid took 30 soldiers and off they went. By the next day, though, the defensive party had arrived back in Santa Fe, and Madrid reported there was no sign of any enemies. The whole thing may have been a test, which it looks like the Spanish passed. Uh, Madrid then reported that everyone in the entire Pecos pueblo, quote, were grateful for the sending of these soldiers to protect them. They welcomed them warmly, and having the Spaniards so firmly on their side, they feel secure, end quote. Again, Vargas' treatment of Pecos uh, seems to be paying off, and it would pay off again before long. Throughout the Battle of Santa Fe, during the day and the night, hundreds of Puebloans had fled northwest to the nearby butte known as Black Mesa. Men, women, and children from San Ildefonso, Poaque, Santa Clara, Tezuque, Cuyamunge, and Acona Pueblos gathered in the hopes of fighting off the Spanish in what they must have been coming to realize was a vain attempt to drive them out once and for all. On February 26th, almost two months of gathering strength, courage, resolve, and probably hoping the Puebloans would come down, but on February 26th, Vargas marched towards Black Mesa. Even though they were gathering the courage, those two months were rough on the colonists, and no doubt the Puebloans as well. The cold and the snow had not ceased in that time. And by now, The colonists were almost out of horses, ammo, and food. It was now or never. But choosing now wasn't easy. As the Spanish waited at the base of the Mesa, with their Pecos Allied army, frozen rain and even more snow pelted them for days. But not just weather rained down. Once they were discovered, the beleaguered Puebloans flung taunts, insults, and threats at the invaders, which were disparaging enough, apparently, for Vargas to issue his men to shoot needlessly up at the screaming and chanting Puebloans. What they said must have really got under his skin. Finally, on March 4th, after enough abuses and constant bad weather, Vargas ordered his men to attack the top of the butte. This time, though, it wasn't as successful as had his attack on Santa Fe been. To start the battle, a cannonball or mortar shell Shot from the Spaniards, misfired, and exploded in the artilleryman's face. He then had 60 men charge up the front as he led 15 around the back. This time, the stones and arrows, those stones and arrows being fired from high above, were much more effective against the armored Spanish than it had been on the walls of Santa Fe. Vargas said he quit the battle with 20 injured soldiers although he did claim to fell 12 to 15 Puebloans. Two more unsuccessful attacks followed. The Spaniards would try and use ladders, but the Puebloan warriors began rolling boulders. It uh, really seems Vargas's luck had begun to change. On March 18th, he abandoned the siege altogether. Roberts describes the turn of luck well when he writes... Quote, so commenced the pattern of warfare that would stretch through March of the fateful year of 1694, from late February to mid September. All over the Pueblo world, the resistors had taken refuge on high, well defended areas such as Black Mesa. If Vargas really hoped to subdue the colony he thought he had already won, he must march from one end of New Mexico to the other, and devise a way to take the higher ground from warriors who, however inferior their weapons, were highly skilled at fending off attacks from below, End quote. After the failed attempt at Black Mesa, and some recuperating in Santa Fe, Vargas and his army head to modern-day Cochiti, where on a similar high mesa nearby, the people, not only from Cochiti, but from other pueblos, uh, but the people, high up on, on the mesa, a large gathering of Puebloans were holed up in the Cochiti ancestral Pueblo of Cotilliti. It was now April in 1694, and Vargas was pissed. He had learned in the interim of hostilities that these Cochiti Puebloans, as soon as Vargas had left the area two years before, these Cochiti Puebloans gave the nearby loyal to Spanish Zia, Santa Ana, and San Felipe Puebloans a hard time including attacking and plundering of their pueblos. For this attack, though, Vargas not only had 50 Spanish soldiers, but also 100 Puebloan warriors as well. Warriors from the aforementioned pueblos, who didn't take too kindly to their families being attacked once the Spanish had left. In the middle of the night, on April 17th, Vargas split up his small army into three units, and they silently charged the top of the fortified mesa. 342 Puebloan prisoners were taken, including 13 warriors, who were, of course, absolved of their sins and then executed. Vargas took the mesa top with surprising ease. Or did he? Four days later, in a surprise counterattack... Vargas says warriors surged down from an even higher and heavily wooded position on the mesa with, quote, furious war cries and a large number of people, end quote. After some intense close-quarter combat, four Puebloan warriors lay dead, but half of the captives got away, so it was somewhat successful for the attackers, I suppose. Three days later, when Vargas and his army and the prisoners left Cotiiti he set fire to the ancestral site, whom the Quiraz-speaking people had been in off and on for centuries. During the next few months, the governor of Pecos, Don Juan de Yey, would bring news of peaceful Apaches wishing to come and do business with the Spanish and the Pecos Pueblo around October. Something they would both benefit from, really. Both times Yey brought the news, Vargas was more than pleased. He thought the more Native Americans he could count as allies, the better. Especially since the West had yet to be reconquered. The Apaches didn't wait for October, though. And in May, the chief of the Apaches came with buffalo skins, meat, and a teepee to offer to Vargas and to thank him for allowing them to trade with the Puebloans, as they had done in the past for years. Then, in Typical fashion, Vargas asked why the Apache chief wasn't baptized. To which, the Apache surprisingly replied, and I'll just quote Kessel's retelling of this incident, Using his hands, the Indian made signs that they should pour water on his head, right then. If the Spaniards would just finish off the rebels, his Apaches would come live in their pueblos and become Christians. That, Vargas allowed, was an excellent thought, provided the rebels did not reoccupy them. End quote. So it was time to finish off these rebels that plagued the reconquest. And it was time to bring the rest of the pueblos under Spanish domain once and for all. But first, he still would like a few more soldiers and settlers, please. In June, on the 23rd, Vargas' hope of more Spaniards would come true. Uh, Around 200 more colonists would uh, show up from Mexico City. But this group was both a blessing and a curse. The problem that had begun even before the Spanish arrived, I mean, this problem that was attempted to be solved by the Chaco-Aztec altiplano with their granaries and their great houses, their palaces filled with grain, the problem that had begun so long ago that there was just never enough food in the Southwest. Well, that problem was still plaguing the Puebloans and the Spaniards, even in 1694. So while this new Spanish group was needed, it was going to be hard, quite hard, to facilitate with such few stores of food. Interesting side note, which I hinted at in the last episode, with this group coming up in 1694, uh, it included three surviving Frenchmen from the La Salle party that I had talked about. I'm not sure why they were there, but maybe they didn't feel comfortable in Mexico City. Or maybe they had some communication skills with the Native Americans that could come in handy. I'm not sure. In early July, soon after the new colonists' arrival, Don Juan from Pecos and Vargas, along with many soldiers and priests, they would march north to Taos to, once again, get that pueblo under Spanish control. It was at this meeting that both tragedy and luck would strike. The tragedy is that Don Juan, uh, the leader from Pecos, the old governor, he was lulled into a false sense of security by the leader of the Taos Pueblo, and he was most likely killed for it. Vargas, after embracing him and warning him of some treachery afoot, after Don Juan had accepted an invitation to stay the night with the Taos Puebloans, well, that hug and blessing by Vargas... It was the last any Spaniard saw of Don Juan. When he didn't return with the Taos leaders the next day, Vargas, as he had promised he would do, sacked the Pueblo of Taos. And when he did, he found an abundance of stored maize. And then with this maize, he secretly, or attempted to secretly, cart this food all the way up through the Colorado and down to Santa Fe in a roundabout way where it made its way into the bellies of the hungry Spanish. Don Juan's son would enter Santa Fe not long after, and Vargas would give him the bad news of the sad fate of his father. Kessel writes of this exchange, quote, Through an interpreter, Diego de Vargas tried, with efficacious words, to express his sympathy. No Spaniard deserved the title reconquer more than Don Juan de Ye, governor of the Pecos, Vargas would never forget him, end quote. Days later, in July, Vargas would be on the other side of the Jemez Mountains to battle with, obviously, the Jemez. By this point in his campaign, he'd gathered 100 more Puebloan warriors from Pecos and Zia, and they were now, despite teaming up in 1680, they were now all too happy to be doing battle again with their old enemy, the Toa-speaking Jemez. The Zia are a uh, Kirasan speaking people, like the Gaina people probably were, and maybe the Chacoans. Toa belongs with Tewa and were from Mesa Verde, if you'll recall. So the old Civil War fault lines were drawn again as descendants from Mesa Verde fought descendants from Chaco. That's my interpretation. Clearly, there was still some ancient animosity. Not to mention, the years between the revolt and the reconquest had been tough. And Pope's promises had not come true, as we recalled in the last episode. And in fact, the opposite had happened. The Zia, therefore, were all too happy to help lead the Spanish up to yet another mesa top pueblo. A mesa top pueblo the Spanish called the Pueblo of the Peñol, but what the Jemez call the Fortress of Astialacqua. In David Roberts' Pueblo Revolt, he is having breakfast with two archaeologists, and they're discussing this place. Astiolacqua. And one of them, Mike Bremer, an archaeologist for the Santa Fe National Forest, he called the ruins of Astiolacqua, which is a place the Jemez had asked the writer David Roberts not to mention by name, which David Roberts did not mention this by name in his book. I just saw the name in other research and am callously using it. But archaeologist Bremer called the Jemez's the Pueblo of the Pinol or Astiolacqua, quote, their Sistine Chapel and their Gettysburg battlefield all rolled into one. End quote. In other words, it's an important place to modern Jemez. If you know anything about the battle of Gettysburg, you know it wasn't going to be an easy battle for Vargas and his troops and fellow warriors. There are only two entrances to the top, and the Puebloans have been gathering stones from the riverbed and napping arrowheads for months in preparation for this battle. The mesa top also had sheer walls, and boulders had been placed strategically to hide behind while also throwing stones, at least until those boulders could also be hurled down and onto the attacking invaders. It was a veritable fortress. At one in the morning, on July 23rd, Vargas, after sneaking to a solid position, silently gave the command to attack. One group, led by a non-relative, also named Vargas, and that Vargas attacked with 100 Zia Puebloan warriors and 25 soldiers. They went up a treacherous but quite effective back way, while Diego de Vargas launched the attack from the front. By four in the afternoon, despite the potential of the fortress, after the fighting and the fire which was set, over 84 Puebloans had perished. Many of them in combat, some of them by fire, seven of them by jumping to their deaths off the mesa walls, which just shows the desperation that they must have unfortunately felt. Two died by a firing squad after being captured and then baptized. No Spanish soldiers or Zia warriors were killed. Also, 361 men, women, and children were captured. The men were offered a deal. If they helped Diego de Vargas, the Spanish, and the Zia, if they helped them make war against their Tewa cousins at Black Mesa near Santa Fe, he'd let them live. Remember that mesa top that he had to give up? Well, two months later in September, with his ranks swelled and his resolve hardened, Vargas marched once again on Black Mesa. By the ninth day of that ninth month in 1694... The Tewa-speaking, once-rebel Mesa Verdeans, who were again rebels against a southern invader, surrendered. There would be no emergence from Tewayo this time. And with that, Vargas hoped his reconquest was finally over. Hoping in reality, though, don't always align. A year later, in the winter of 1695, the Spanish were tested with yet another incredibly harsh season, as so many in New Mexico proved to be. Again, check out my last episode to really get a feel for the suffering that can happen in the land of entrapment. And the one before that, too, actually. But also remember how many settlers had died while waiting to enter Santa Fe. But the winter of 1695-96 to 96, yet again saw the Puebloans reaching a boiling point. The Spanish were still demanding too much and taking too much, including foods, livestock, and clothing, right off the Puebloans' back again. It seemed some of the old ways had returned. In December, during that rough winter of 1695, yet another threat of revolt loomed as Spanish families trickled into the area while Puebloans starved. Since the reconquest, churches had been rebuilt, baptism had begun again, and more and more colonists were arriving. Meanwhile, Franciscan friars in that Christmas month uh, began sending messages to Vargas from places as far apart as Taos to the Hopi mesas that the native people were growing displeased. Not wanting to alarm the Puebloans into outright revolt again by sending whole armies, Vargas decided instead to go himself from Pueblo to Pueblo to quell the burgeoning rebellion. For a time, that plan seemed to have worked. By the end of the spring, on June 4th, 1696, so now we're two years ahead from just that that Battle of Black Mesa. So in 1696, it seems what had been percolating for a while, this latent rebellion that I kept hinting at, it seems it bubbled up to the surface, and in a coordinated effort across much of New Mexico, the Puebloans rose up yet again. Not in his Pueblo Revolt of 1680, writes, quote, Five missionaries and 21 settlers lost their lives in a coordinated uprising that threatened to repeat the Pueblo's successes of 1680, quote. And then John Kessel writes of the incident, At San Ildefonso, rebels fired the church and convento with Fathers Francisco Corvera and Antonio Moreno. Inside. Near the convento of twice-relocated San Cristobal, they tossed the bodies of two more Franciscans, partially stripped, face-up grotesquely, in the form of a cross. At San Diego de los Jemes, the Indians called Father Francisco de Jesús, Maria Casañas to confess a dying woman. It was a ruse. Clubbing him dead, they threw the body at the church door, where wild beasts later consumed much of it. End quote. This time, though, the revolt would fail. The three Pueblos I mentioned earlier, Zia, Santa Ana, and San Felipe, with the added help of the always-allied Pecos and Tsuke Pueblos, they would not rebel, and would in fact help the Spanish in quelling the angry Puebloans. Even some of the Puebloans within the revolting Pueblos wanted nothing to do with the coming violence that this attempted revolution would no doubt bring. Knott writes of some of these leery Puebloans, quote, In San Cristobal, for example, a Taino woman recounted the killing of two friars in the village on the first day of the uprising and told of how, quote, the old Indian women and other women put their arms around the bodies and wept over them tenderly, sorrowful over the death of the said two religious and lamenting the hardships which they expected to undergo in the mountains with their children. She also noted that some of the Indian men were of this same sentiment. All the Puebloans, it seems, were tired of the violence. For the next seven months... Vargas would ride from Pueblo Stronghold and Mesa Top Fortress, including ones he'd already burned or destroyed previously. But Vargas would ride around the land from one Pueblo Stronghold to the next Mesa Top Fortress. Each time, he'd repeat his previous winning record, and each time the Puebloans would be defeated. Almost all the Puebloans would be defeated. In August, Vargas would try and siege Akama but he gave up after only three days. The fortress was just too impenetrable. At one point, he asked the Puebloans to come on down and have a real fight on this nice level ground, to which, obviously, the Puebloans laughed at and not so politely refused. At one battle during the now-bloody reconquest, re-reconquest, I suppose, At one battle, the Spanish would kill a Puebloan revolt leader named Naranjo, possibly related to the aforementioned Naranjos, which I spoke of in the last episode. But as a Naranjo in one of David Roberts' books said, there are a lot of Naranjos. So this leader, this Naranjo leader, his head would be kept as a trophy. And similar fates would meet the other leaders of this ill-fated revolt 2.0, until it fizzled and was over. Kessel wrote a great summation of the effects of this ill-fated revolt when he wrote, quote, The Pueblo Revolt of 1696 had backfired. By forcing a decision in Mexico City, it had strengthened the Spaniards' hand. New Mexico must never be evacuated again, whatever the cost. Another such humiliation of Spanish arms and the whole northern frontier might rise. Therefore, the precarious colony must be reinforced with more settlers, provisions, tools, and livestock. The revolt of 1696 not only assured the presence of many more Spaniards in New Mexico, but also, by its failure to attract all the Pueblos, it crushed forever the prospect of another 1680." From then on, essentially, uh, between the Puebloans and the Spanish, Toleration and cooperation, as Nott puts it, quote, to a degree unimaginable in the previous century underscored the interaction of the two peoples. End quote. You know how Akama didn't give up in 1696, I just mentioned? That's probably a good thing, because it turns out leaders from Cochiti, Santo Domingo, Jemez, and a couple other pueblos were actually holed up there. And they were there in an attempt to escape the Spanish retribution. So if Vargas had made it up there and captured them all, well, that may have been the end of them. Many Puebloans, not just from Jemez, Santo Domingo, and Cochiti, but many Puebloans had actually fled during and after the Second Revolt to the West. They fled to the West. And they did that to live amongst the Puebloans out there and the Hopi and even Navajo and Apache. And all of these groups were just outside of the Spanish grasp. But at Acoma, those escaped rebel leaders and a few Acomans themselves would cause enough trouble for the Acoma people that they leave or be forced out. I'm not sure which one. And when they left, they'd take a good number of Acoma Puebloans with them. After they left, they then traveled not that far off and created the Laguna Pueblo, which is the only Pueblo that was formed after the revolt of 1680. By 1707, Laguna had half the number of people that Acama did. Other Puebloans that didn't want to be at Acama or Laguna, they fled further west to Zuni and Hopi after Vargas had left them. So Vargas's turn as governor actually ended while he was on campaign. But once the re-revolt had died down, his time was truly up. He had succeeded, you could say, He had succeeded, and New Mexico was mostly reconquered for Spain and God. The Puebloan peoples were were no longer free from Spanish rule, and their time as the only peoples in the American Southwest was gone for good. The Puebloan's ancestors had traveled by boat twenty-five, forty thousand 40000 years ago, or by land 15,000 years ago. Probably both. They crossed the Bering Strait and the Pacific Ocean, and island hopped along the northern part of the pacific ocean and they most likely even i'm going to say across the north atlantic too and their ancestors made this hemisphere this continent their home their ancestors had developed the technology to hunt the mammoths the mastodons the giant ground sloths the bison the tigers the lions the bears the wolves their ancestors had rid the land of icy giants the Puebloan's ancestors had emerged into this fourth world and had planted the corn and had weaved the baskets and fired the pottery and etched the ghostly rain-burst figures and bighorn sheep and the six toes They'd etched them into the walls of the southwest. They had stories of their people building the ruins in the four corners and tearing out hearts and fighting each other. Their ancestors had built the great houses, the ball courts, the fire towers, the roads... The Pueblos, the Kivas, they had stories of combining their clans and using the Kachina to spread peace and war. They'd been the sole rulers of the American Southwest since the Chacoans left. But after Don Diego de Vargas' successful reconquest of 1696, those days were over. And the Native Americans of the American Southwest, the Puebloans and Navajos and Apaches and many other tribes and groups and nations in the region would soon have a new normal. And a new enemy. And a new identity. And we're not done yet with the story though. There's enough to keep it rather interesting. Four years after the reconquest, in the year of our Lord 1700, tons of refugees from the Santa Fe area and the Alisteo Basin, to be precise, but a a large group of Taino Puebloans moved to the Hopi's first mesa. There, uh, they created a town called Hano, right next to the existing Sichomovi. Today, those Tanoans still speak Tewa, but they also speak the udo Aztec and Hopi, and they still hold on to their original Santa Fe Valley Mesa Verdean language. I know I mentioned them a few episodes ago, actually, um, they act as a law enforcement for the Hopi to this day. But these Tewa speakers were some of the most ardent pushers of the Pueblo revolt. It was they who said they needed to cleanse the land of the Spanish so that they could emerge again from Tehuayu, as they had done before with the Poseyemo. They were also the main defenders of Santa Fe when Vargas had returned again for the reconquest. They weren't alone at the first mesa, though. Jemez and even Cochiti Puebloans the ones that didn't want to stay at Acoma or Laguna. But a bunch of others also joined the Hopi, although most would not stay forever and many would eventually return home. Also in the year 1700, something else happens among the Hopi mesas. Something that perplexes researchers, archaeologists, anthropologists, historians, and yours truly. And that something is the complete and utter destruction of the Pueblo of Awatovi. The Pueblo of Avatobi on Antelope Mesa had a lot of history, and we discussed a bunch of that history already. Well, that history is about to end, completely, and its ending would leave a lasting impression among the Hopi and anyone who studies what supposedly went down. Some of that history of what went down was told to ethnographers and anthropologists at the end of the 19th century, but one researcher really seemed to crack the code of Puebloan secrecy. And he did it not that long ago. That researcher was German-born Ekehart Malatki. And probably better than any other non-Puebloan in history, Malatki could fluently speak Hopi. While at the Hopi mesas, Malatki would record the oral tradition of what happened at Awatovi. Then in 1993, like I said, not that long ago, he would publish his work. His book and a few other works, they may be the reason the Puebloans have slowly closed off to their white neighbors since then. Well, Malatki recorded one particular village elder, or story-rememberer, as he called them, which is a great name for an oral traditionalist, storyteller, story-rememberer. This story-rememberer's name, though, was Loa Tuitma. I'll sum up the story as best I can. By 1700, it seems Awatobi was descending into a nightmare. The rich and enormous city was spiraling out of control with the rates of crime, rape, and murder on the rise. And on top of that, for five years a drought rocked the pueblo, with two of those years seeing no rainfall at all. Boys were turning vile and doing evil things to the elders and the women. It's all really gnarly stuff. This pueblo's descent into seeming madness is frightening. Eventually, the headman of Awatovi, Ta'apolo, realizes he must do something for his pueblo or his people will continue to suffer. He himself, Ta'apolo, had felt much suffering since the revolt. First, his beautiful daughter was killed by a man on horseback when she was run over. Then, the betting game he was playing with some neighbors and fellow villagers descended into a promiscuous sex orgy, which kind of puts strip poker in a new light, but which also tarnished his good name. And then lastly, he witnessed his wife cheat on him after a lovely evening of Kiva dancing. Things weren't going well for Awatovi or Ta'apolo. And he and the entire Pueblo had only one thing to blame. And that was Koya Aniskatsi witches. After a deep think and some possible peyote use, more on that in a second, but after some self-reflection, Ta'apolo comes up with the plan on how to turn things around. His remedy the complete and total annihilation of he and his entire pueblo of Awatovi. After some rejection from other Hopi towns, which seems reasonable, but after some rejection, the leader of Oraibi hears him out and agrees. It's what's got to be done to rid the land of witches. Oraibi, you'll remember, was not reconquered by the Spanish. So there are no brown robes or crosses at the large city on Third Mesa, or at least there wasn't in 1700. And Ed O'Reiby, they were watching all of this in horror and thanking their lucky kachinas it wasn't happening to them. So one late autumn morning in the year of our Lord 1700, after a signal from Ta'polo, the other Hopi Puebloans attacked the city. The men at that time were in the kivas doing men stuff, and when the attackers arrived and pulled the ladders up, they set the kivas on fire with the men inside. The entire village was burned, with many of the people being burned alive. The survivors, many of them had their legs and arms chopped off. The men, some of them had their penises and testicles severed. Some women had their breasts cut off. In some stories, these hacked-apart, brutalized prisoners were left to die on the sand at the base of the mesa. But one man has found evidence of even further butchery. That man is Christy Turner. Yes, that Christy Turner. The archaeologist I have mentioned many times. The man who coined the term mancorn. Well, if I'm mentioning him now, you know what's coming. In 1970, Turner examined the remains of 30 Puebloans who had been found at the base of Antelope Mesa, at a place called Polakawash, the place I have been to without knowing this history yet. These remains have been dated to 1700 using radiocarbon techniques, so the same year as the massacre at Awatovi, obviously, Turner found pot polishing and other examples of cannibalism. It seems man corn was still on the menu for the Puebloans, and it seems the survivors of the massacre at Awatovi or eaten. At least, some of them. Loituwitma concludes the story of the destruction of Awatovi with, quote, Thus, the village leader, Ta'polo, sacrifices his own children to get rid of this life of evil, craziness, and chaos. End quote. That seems like a bit much, but there's more. After this sacking and burning of Awatovi, The Hopis drove the Spanish-Franciscan friars out of the Hopi mesas, all of them, once and for all. Since the reconquest and reopening of the churches, the friars may have been baptizing in the year 1700 a hundred souls a day. But that was no more after the destruction at Awatobi. The Hopis, it turns out, were the only Pueblos to be spared the Catholics proselytizing from then on. I mean, they partly blamed the Catholics for the witches being there in the first place. But there could be more to this kind of harrowing story. In 2002, a paper titled Reimagining Awatovi by an anthropologist named Peter Whiteley, I believe I may have even quoted from him in one of the episodes, but Reimagining Awatovi by Peter Whiteley was published in 2002. And in that paper, he claims to have found evidence of the use of peyote in the Puebloan world. And it was... This use of peyote that may have contributed to the spiraling out of control at the Pueblo of Awatovi. He goes on to write about a secret manhood cult called Wubutzim that may have been using the drug to fuel a Pueblo revival as a kind of contradiction to the growing Catholic influence. The Wubutzim may have blamed the Catholics for the sorcery or papuact that was destroying the town. Whiteley uses in that paper both Spanish and Hopi accounts to pretty convincingly tie this theory together, which he does say is a lot of conjecture. He also talks to David Roberts and tells him, quote, "The real Papuakt were the Hopi who supported the church at Alvatovi." Therefore, to get rid of the Papuakt The Koya Aniskatzi, the bad sorcery, the witches, the Catholics, the brown robes. To fix the town, it had to burn, and its residents had to be destroyed along with it. And that included some good old-fashioned Anasazi ancestral Puebloan man corn. But, like with a lot of things Puebloan, the answer may never be known by non-Hopi. David Roberts interviews a few other researchers and Hopi about Awatovi. Some believe it was done because they needed to be rid of the Spanish. Others believe it was done because Awatovi was gaining immense wealth and influence over the other Hopi. And we know how the Puebloans, especially Hopi, feel about that. A Hopi man, a Mesa guide named Gary Tso, who, yes, still offers tours, I checked him out online, and next time my wife and I are over there, we would love to use him. Unless my series on the Hisatzinim or Anasazi doesn't get me into too much trouble with the Hopi. But Gary tells Robert straight up, quote, The old people say, oh, Awatovi, that was a terrible thing, but I just think it was our most glorious day. We could have ended up like them, end quote. Them being the conquered and converted Puebloans, I assume. I mentioned that Vargas' turn as governor was over, and after the campaign, he was replaced. But oh, in typical New Mexico-Spanish governor style, the story's so much juicier than that. Don Diego de Vargas, the last male descendant in the noble Vargas line of Madrid, was replaced by a Rodriguez-Cubero, but Vargas flat-out refused to give up his position. So, naturally, Cubero had him imprisoned, and Vargas would sit in that prison in Santa Fe, the town that he had reconquered not once but twice. He'd sit in that prison for three years. Once back in Mexico, New Spain, after his imprisonment was over, Vargas would campaign and hustle his way to another governorship. This one would see him as governor starting in 1703. But during this time as ruler of Nuevo Mexico, he would die on campaign at 60 years old while doing battle with the Apaches. In the Vargas Family Chapel in Madrid in Spain, there is a portrait of the man with a Spanish inscription that reads, and this is my Spanglish, El Señor Don Diego de Vargas Zupataluhan Ponce de Leon, Marquis de la Nava de Barcinas, of the Order of Santiago, Gobernador, Conquistador, Pacificador, y Capitan General de Nuevo Mexico. He lost his life in open battle while attempting to rescue the sacred vessels at the Siege of Bernalillo, the year seventeen o four. It turns out. The inscription may be a little off, as it is most likely that he died due to an unknown illness rather than during battle. I'm sure he much rather would have gone out from the tip of an arrow or the blunt side of a river stone thrown from high atop a mesa wall, but he did die in his beloved New Mexico, the land of entrapment indeed. During his second time as governor, though, before his death, Vargas would pursue runaway Puebloans into Navajo land, or Dineta, but mostly unsuccessfully. He fully believed, and a lot of researchers and archaeologists and Puebloans today also believe, that many refugee Puebloan fled Vargas and the Spanish, and when they did, they took up residence with their once sworn enemy, the Navajo. They figured better to live with a fellow Indian than the Europeans, probably. That view of them living there has recently been challenged, of course, but I am of the opinion that there certainly were a good many refugees that would have fled and influenced Navajo culture and life. Maybe not significantly, but certainly in a few ways. Vargas' main lieutenant during the reconquest, Roque Madrid, would, after Vargas dies, also pursue the rebel Puebloans into Dineta. In 1705, he would wage a brutal and ravaging campaign. On his quest to, quote, make war by fire and sword on the Apache Navajo enemy nation, end quote. During that time, he hurtled towards northwestern New Mexico in hot pursuit of his perceived enemy. Then, after ten days of searching... He finally ran into three Indians. I mean, one was a young woman with a boy, both Navajo and both starving, and the other was a young Jemez woman, which does seem to prove that there were Puebloan refugees among the Navajo. But for these three, things did not get better after being discovered. Despite being women and children and being starving, Madrid would have the women tortured into revealing where the rest of their beleaguered people were. I'm not sure of their ultimate fate. It's probably best that way. But I imagine if Vargas had been there, things may have ended up better for them. On August 12th, 1705, Madrid, who was 60 years old at this point, he was finally able to wage his battle against the Indians who'd escaped he and his boss all those years ago. This battle was fought against mostly Navajo, but with some Jemez, and it was fought on top of a butte in a place called Gubernador Canyon, possibly named after Vargas. It was a gnarly battle with ledges and ladders. The Indians ambushed Madrid in the morning after a night of yelling and taunting back and forth between both the Indians on the butte and the Spanish and Indian allies at the base of the butte. In that ambush, she drove it back, right back up onto the butte, but in the process, some Navajo and Jemez fell and died. Those that didn't die when they hit the deck were summarily executed. All of them were scalped, though, by the Indian allies of Madrid and the Spanish. These scalpings were done intentionally away from the bottom of the butte so that the people on top could see the act. But surprisingly, the Navajo and Jemez repelled the attack, and Madrid actually called the whole thing off. Two days later, he'd fight another battle at a place called Tapacito Creek. Although, you can't quite call it a battle, really. At Tapacito Creek, on top of another butte, the Navajo and Puebloan refugees shouted at Madrid that they wanted peace and no more fighting. For two hours, Madrid kept up the ruse as a group of soldiers and Puebloans flanked the peace-seeking Indians. Once surrounded, the massacre began. Madrid wrote of the whole affair, quote, Of the more than thirty that were there, no more than five escaped, not counting two, who in a great fury threw themselves over the edge, end quote. he concluded conclude by, quote, Thanking God that in the whole battle only one of my men was lost, and he was an Indian, end quote. Madrid would go on to burn every cornfield he could find before returning to Santa Fe and retiring at 70. The Navajo and rebel refugee Jemez would surrender after their corn was destroyed, and that surrender signifies the end of the resistance from the Puebloans in the Spanish territory of New Mexico. By 1706, the Comanches were the new threat, and this led to the Spanish and the Puebloans working quite closely together militarily with the same technology this time, including arquebuses and horses. They had to fight against a powerful common enemy. The Comanche were powerful. And by now, the Puebloans also had much less demands placed on them from the Spanish. Tributes were greatly decreased, much to their relief, and missionary Friar Zeal had pretty much gone away, leaving the Puebloans to practice whatever they chose Out in the open or in their kivas, life in New Mexico had found a balance. So, what can we make of the revolt? Was it a success? Was it a failure? Was it worth it? Do I need to editorialize it at all? I would answer that by looking at the Puebloans' lives before and after the revolt. As as I just kind of said there in that last paragraph, life in New Mexico had found a balance when the Puebloans didn't have nearly as much put on their shoulders, and the Catholics and the friars and the priests weren't punishing them and beating them, hanging them, you know. So I think the fact that life was better after the revolt kind of tells me that it was probably worth it. Now, sure, a lot of people lost their lives. I mean, just think of the Zia who fought one of the uh, initial reconquest attempts and lost how many? You know? All of the people, the 70 at Santa Fe that were shot outside the walls. I don't think the Spanish had any other choice. Later, they would offer choices to the revolting Puebloans, but. That first battle, you do have to set a precedent. And, you know, I think the Puebloans being able to practice their own religion at the end is also a good thing. Even though I'm a Christian, and I think that's the way to go, it's it's good that they were able to hold on to their faiths and their beliefs and their culture. I think that's a great thing. You know, recently I have kind of made a cultural turnaround of sorts myself mostly in light of the world around me, I suppose, and where we are headed and where I believe it's going, unfortunately. But I think the revolt was ultimately a great thing because the Puebloans, they got to self-govern and practice their own beliefs after the Reconquista once the Spanish kind of realized they needed to make some compromises, as I just kind of talked about. And I believe that being able to self-govern and practice your own beliefs is a beautiful and a necessary thing. You know, in this current environment that I live in, I see it as extremely beneficial and lucky that those people were able to shake off the yoke of a tyrannical government that was seated very far from their own homes and led by a people they could not understand, who demanded they quit their own way of life and were being forced to participate in a society they deemed full of witchcraft. All the while, they were forced to pay an overbearing amount of taxes or as they called it, tribute. Now, I absolutely know the feeling of all of that. I think it's amazing that, as Roberts puts it, uh, quote, no Native American peoples anywhere in the United States have kept their cultures more intact than the 20 pueblos in New Mexico and Arizona, end quote. Personally, I cheer on the fact that they were able to keep out the influences of an ever-encroaching and strangling culture that their surrounding empire was forcing down the throats of themselves and the world at large. And I hope that they could continue to be successful at keeping out the evil influences of an evil empire, be it Spanish or you know, whatever is sitting in D.C. When I began this entire series, I had differing views of this and other things. I mean, just the series alone. A lot has changed. I believed Back then, the best way for the Native American Puebloans to quote-unquote succeed in this world of the 21st century is to just assimilate, open up, become like the rest of America, become like the rest of the West, Europeans. But now that I no longer want to assimilate into whatever that culture or lack of culture is, I think, well, I hope the Puebloans continue to protect and allow their culture to flourish in their own homes, in their own lands. Now, Even despite my frustration at not knowing everything that I want to about the Puebloans, I believe that they have a right to keep their tradition theirs. I was raised in the Mormon, or LDS, or as a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and they have their temples and their ceremonies that happen within those temples, and when you do those ceremonies, you're you're told not to tell the outside world. So why should we demand that of the Puebloans? So it's not up to us to force them to tell us what happened, and as Lexin said, we can never know what has truly happened in the ancient times with the with the ancient ones, or even with the Puebloans recently. And maybe it should stay that way. So all that saying, I think the Pueblo revolt was worth it. A loss of life on both Spanish and Puebloan side is sad, as always, but sometimes violence is the only way to achieve your goals, especially if those goals are liberty. So, Next time, oh, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not condoning violence, by the way. I don't want to get in trouble or for any of y'all to think I'm crazy. But, so next time, we're not quite done with the Spanish, actually. I kind of changed the name of this series, um, When the Spanish Arrived, from the Ancient Ones to the Spanish Southwest. Hopefully nobody noticed, but well, I've told you now anyways. So our next episode will conclude The Spanish in the Southwest. It will be over the Dominguez Escalante expedition that went from Santa Fe up to Colorado, over to Utah, down to Arizona, and then back to Santa Fe. They were trying to reach California, I believe, of all things. It's crazy. They had no idea how far away they were. I don't want to ruin anymore. Stay tuned, and I will see you guys again in the American Southwest.